Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca, which is part of the 99.94 Network. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. Could you give me your name and job title, please? Obhishek Mukherjee, Head of Content, Western India. Also, chief writer, not even chief writer, almost like the only writer at Double Century, the 99.94 podcast, which is where you can usually see Abhishek, well, hear Abhishek through me. So it's like Abhishek with a random Australian English accent thrown in. I wanted you to come on so we could talk about the history of man cats, because I think that most people have no idea how this thing happened, how far it goes back and everything else. I want to start with something though. I'm going to talk about what I think are two of the most popular cricketers in the history of the game. One is WG Grace, who obviously has the uh, Gates at Lords named after himself. And the other one is Brendan McCullum. WG Grace, and you'll have to correct me on any details because I think I've, I should have looked this up, but I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head. Sammy Jones is playing in an early England Australian game for Australia. He's hit on the thigh pad or he knocks the ball around the corner to square leg. The ball just trickles out. There's no run on offer. And Sammy Jones basically looks at WG Grace. According to him, he nods at WG Grace. He then goes down the wicket to do some gardening. WG Grace picks up the ball and runs him out. That one moment essentially starts the whole Ashes things. Fred Spofforth is so upset. I think Spofforth was the next batter in as well. So he's probably even more upset. He goes on a wild tear, destroys England. The Ashes, the obituary is written just after that. And in some ways, that's the birthplace of why international cricket was a lot more uh, full-on than domestic cricket had ever been, right? Why it mattered a lot more. That's WG Grace, who now is seen as some sort of god in English culture. The next one is probably a modern god, which is Brendan McCullum, who is in a test match in, I think it was in New Zealand. The ball comes into him, and while the ball comes into him, Sangakara has made his 100. Murali goes down to celebrate with Sangakara, and Brendan McCullum runs him out. There's no cricket skill in either of those two things. And Brendan McCullum and WG Grace are seen as an ancient god and a new god of cricket. And yet it's exactly the same as man-cutting. And neither of them are seen in a negative way at all because of those events. Am I missing something here other than those guys were already really popular and were really good at cricket? Because to me, it feels like that was 
as dickish as people seem to assume that man-catting is, and no one has a problem with it. You know, the whole, was it Simon Hughes put out the tweet recently going, there's no cricket skill. What cricket skill is there in Brendan McCullum taking the bails off because Murley is hugging the batter at the other end, right? <laughs> there's no cricket skill. I don't know. I mean, uh, I also don't get the, the taboo behind this. See, we have discussed this, I think, over the last few months. This has come to light more often. Thomas Barker. Tell us when the first time Thomas Barker did this, because this is going to blow some people's minds. What year was it? 1835, the first instance. 1835, right? 1835. Yeah, was the first to do this in first class cricket in 1835. He was the second to do this, Thomas Barker, in 1836. Who was the third person to do this? Thomas Barker, 1837. (laughs) Thomas Barker was the fourth, 1842. And the fifth... In 1843. How many first-class games did Thomas Barker play? I'll have to check. I don't know. It's this not from... a lot, though, is it? No, uh, but uh, he took 211 first-class wickets. Mm. He was My a, point is... He, he bowled fast. He was a renowned bowler of the era. And uh, if you read, his, read about him online, in books, you don't get the runouts mentioned. The last of these was in Lord, so it was as big an audience you could get in 1843. But uh, they don't get a mention. So if a person does it five times and none of them gets a mention, the first five times in history, that can mean only one thing. This wasn't considered important enough. Mm. So he played 72 matches. I just had a look. He basically, you know, what, every 12 or so test, ma- uh, test matches, sorry, first-class matches, he is running someone out at the bowler's end when they have backed up too far. And as you say, he does it at Lords, so he's not doing it at Trent Bridge. Well, actually, Trent Bridge didn't even exist probably when he played, but, you know, he's not doing it at Old Trafford or some random ground. He's doing it at the place where all the media is, where all the attention is. What's interesting, though, again, is that no one else seems to catch on to this, right? So clearly, you know, Thomas Barker does it. No one's upset, but also no one else is copying him. I find that very interesting. Or, and I'll ask you because you're better with history than I am, there's a possibility that the other people had done it and it just hadn't been reported on before. Possible. This is essentially what the scorers put in their match notes. So when they write scorebooks, yeah. they put in footnotes and this is where it features. Yeah. No, it's, it's really interesting. So that's how far back we're talking about, 1835. And as you say, Thomas Barker is not, I mean, we're not sitting here talking about a Barker. I'll give you another example. In 1870, again at Lord's, this was an Eton Harrow match. So, school cricketers, Lord Harris, obviously, was probably not Lord back then. But yeah, he ran out, a batter called Conrad Walroth. So now what happens is, I'm quoting Spencer Gore, the first person to win the Wimbledon. So he was there, he wrote on the match. And so this is what he writes. And pretending to bowl, caught Walroth tripping and he paid the penalty. So he is not accusing the bowler. He's accusing the non-strike. Also, did you say he, he called it tripping? Yep. Yeah. So it's basically, that's really interesting. Is he saying he actually tripped or is he saying he made a trip out of the crease? Because that could be in either way. Do you know what I mean? That, that's, almost, that's almost two different connotations to that. So again, that's a really interesting way. But as you said, he's blaming the batter. So we're still blaming the batter up until this point. How many more happened from Lord Hawke all the way through to World War II? Actually, there's a the, the list. This list is very long, mm. and uh, 
The funny thing is, it happened in Australia before Mankat. Indians have done this before Mankat. Mm-hmm. And so essentially what Mankat did was the first time in test cricket. And even then, there was almost no reaction regarding this. So I'm, yeah. ju- I'm just looking at the list. So essentially it had uh, last happened in 2018-19, before that in 2017-18. And uh, in all four times in the last decade. And... Uh, once in the decade before that, and then 1980s, 1970s, this has happened throughout. I've got in first-class cricket, after Thomas Barker goes on his rampage and gets five, there is 11 more first-class instances of this from 1846 until 1943-44. Those are in Wellington, Nagpur, Karachi, a few in England, one in Sydney as well. Um, in a Victoria-New South Wales game. I'm sure that went down well. A couple more in New Zealand as well. Another one in a Victoria-New South Wales game. Again, I'm sure that went down uh, brilliantly at the time. So it's happening frequently, but also it's not becoming a trend or anything, right? Like it's not it's not taking over the game. It's certainly not, you know, a lot more like what we're seeing at the moment. It's just something that is happening very, very occasionally, right? Is that fair to say in that period? Yeah, I mean, uh, the dismissals of this kind happened. But no one actually cared. They exist in scorecards. They not scorecards. They exist in the footnotes of scorers. But you won't find them in literature. There was no. These did not lead to scandal. Yeah, and also I would just said that the other part of that is that, as we said before with the Thomas Barker thing, if it is footnotes in scorecards, if it's not seen as a notable event, right? There might have been a lot more scorers that weren't mentioning it, right? Yeah. If it's seen yeah. as a notable event, yes. obviously, you know, as a scorer, you're going to put it in. So again, we're, we're talking about something that happened probably far more than we have yeah. numbers for, just because it hasn't always been put down because it wasn't seen as a very big thing. If you were out of your crease, the bowler had a perfect right to be able to run you out. Is that fair to say at that, at that point? Yeah, I mean, uh, that was considered normal. So essentially... I am looking at a book called Felix on the Bat. So this is by Nicholas Felix. It is a book written around 1840-1850, sometime around the late 1840s. One of the first major cricket books, is that fair to say? Yeah, one of the first major book of cricket instructions, you can say. It's also basically sort of an advertisement for one of the earliest bowling machines. Felix built his own bowling machine. But... uh, Yeah, so this comes with a proper diagram of a bowler doing this. And the text says, you may be too anxious to obtain a run. You ought to be very anxious to make all you can, but it is dangerous to leave your ground before you're well convinced that the bowler is not watching over your anxiety as above. Yeah, so the picture is really clear, anyone who's watching it, but if you're not and uh, you're listening on the podcast, essentially, it's just a picture of what we would call a run out at the non-strikers end now. The batter has left the ground. He's about two inches out um, and the bowler has stopped and is running them out. It's exactly what we're talking about. There's, it doesn't look any different than what you see with someone like Ashwin or what you saw in you know, the Under-19 World Cup those years ago and all the different big events. It's exactly the same as what we would see now. Right, And at at that stage, you're cautioning the batter against doing it. Again, the bowler is not seen to be at blame at all. Is that fair? Yeah. If there was any taboo attached, it was with the batter, non-striker. The bowler was never criticized for this. 
No. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. So I want to, I want to take you back to, I, I said we're going to talk about Vinu Mankamp. We're going to talk about him in a little bit. The first thing that we need to really mention here is that there is certainly from, I would say from about the 1930s, maybe even the 1920s, the Australians are very, very aggressive with running between the wickets in a way that cricket hadn't really seen before, right? If you ever watch any footage of Bradman and then you watch any footage of Jack Hobbs, there seems to be a huge difference between the way that the two of them were going about their running. And at that point, people are starting to talk about the Australian running between wicket as a really, really interesting tactic of, you know, stealing singles, but then also looking to make, you know, ones into twos. All the stuff that we talk about now, they did a very similar thing in the 80s in one day cricket as well, where they took that and they sort of weaponized it for one day cricket. But it really does start to be talked about as a team tactic around the 20s and 30s. I'll just pause for a bit. I'm just looking at Bradman's, the scorecard of Bradman's 452. Oh, yeah, so, go. So he faced 465 balls. He got 452 and 465 balls. But there's the interesting bit is just 49 fours and no six. So one half, I mean, about 40% of his runs came in boundaries. He ran the rest. Yeah. And he ran the runs for his partners. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that's one thing you really, as I said, it's really something you notice when you look at other old cricketers that they're not doing what Bradman does. And, and I think part of it was inspired by Bradman, but also I think Bradman was inspired by Australian cricket and the, and the two sort of come together. Bill Brown comes from the next generation. Bill Brown's from the post-war Australian cricket generation, more so than the pre-war generation. But Bill Brown was known as one of the best runners between wickets in the world. Now, the one thing I would say about this is, I wonder how much he was known about that before these two runouts in a row than he was after these two runouts. But there is no doubt, again, if you have a look at any footage of Bill Brown, he is tearing down the wicket and really, really running in a way that modern T20 players do at the death. Yes. Right? Real, real running, you know, dropping your head down and going for it. Bill Brown is obviously also a fantastic cricketer. You know, any way that you can get Bill Brown out. The other thing that's worth noting here is that I think Gideon Haig's written about this a lot, but Roland um, Bowen is another one that's written about it a lot. There is certainly post-war a big change in the way that we think and talk about cricket as opposed to pre-World War II. And I think it comes from probably England society and that sort of the uh, conservative nature that comes in, looking back towards the good old days when England was the most important country and everything else, there's a look back towards, oh, wasn't it great when the amateurs were around and all this sort of stuff. And it's really the 1950s when the spirit of cricket, in my reading of history books, becomes all important and starts to get mentioned more and more and more. Whereas before that, as we've talked about with W.G. Grace, I mean, whatever spirit of cricket W.G. Grace had, it was more like Slimer from Ghostbusters than, um, you know, any immaculate conceptions sort of spirit, right? Would you agree that the 1950s was also very much this looking back at the good old days and the amateurs and the spirit of cricket? That seems to be where it really takes place. Yeah. So in the next decade, what you see is uh, several revolutions in the 19, early, uh, early 1960s. For the first time in history, a test series not involving England actually gets footage. One day cricket gets a national competition. Limited overs cricket becomes big. Slowly it takes off. 
And West Indies becomes so popular that England does something drastic. England breaks the summer. So New Zealand and South Africa are supposed to tour England in 65 and 66. The West Indies become so popular in 63 that England invite West Indies again in 66 and uh, pool South Africa and New Zealand in the same summer, 65. So essentially that is where the slit summer thing began. So the entire English summer now doesn't have any more gentlemen versus players. That concept is gone. Limited overs cricket is there. They are trying to bring the public back to the ground. And now they have split summers. The entire English summer has changed in the 1960s. More and more overseas professionals have started to come. So I would think, I'm not sure, but I would think that a part of them were trying to keep as much of the old brigade as possible there, the old philosophy. Not exactly based on facts, but yeah. I mean, that's what I would say, that it's a proper thing that conservative people quite often do, is they, you know, they go back to the good old days, kind of ignoring the fact that they weren't good old days anyway. It's just what they would have preferred to be happening. Mm -hmm. And that's really what that 1950s becomes. And this is important because Bill Brown is obviously, as I said, he's a cricketer after the Second World War. He's a modern, more modern kind of cricketer in the way that he's playing the game. And then when these runouts happen, it's actually late 40s when they happen. Uh, it's 47, 48, isn't it, um, is the actual summer that they happen in. But there does seem to be a bit of a movement at that point back towards the good old days of cricket, even if you and I would argue that the good old days of cricket was probably before Hambledon ever put up a fence and started charging people a ticket, right? If you're going to have a good old days of cricket, it's probably when just everyone could play it and uh, you played it at your local uh, park. It was a betting sport. Yeah, yeah, I know, but on the streets, it was at least the people yeah. were betting. It, and Hambledon made it a betting sport for elite people, right? Yeah. We would both argue, I think, that there is no good old days of cricket. There's just lots of cricket and we love it, right? But there certainly is that feeling. So this incident sort of happens, as we've said, with the professionalization of the way that Australia play cricket in an era when it is getting more and more towards looking back. And I, I think that was just a thing that people did. World War II changed, especially the Western world, so much that, you know, people were suddenly, you know, longing for a life before it and looking back at the old days and, and romanticizing the old days. Let's just talk about Vino Mancad now that we've explained Bill Brown and we've explained the culture and the time period that we're talking about. Vino Mancad was probably a slightly below average batter in test match cricket, but for the time was certainly a top quality player and was in a better team, probably maybe bats in a slightly friendlier position to him where he could bat slightly lower down the order, but he could certainly bat, right? I mean, he's got a very, very good solid record. Two double hundreds. And none of them was his most famous innings. So that happened yeah. in Lords in 1952. Mankad, I think, in a better team, he could, could have cut down on his responsibilities and focused on either batting or bowling and would probably have become outstanding in one. Until Ian Botham, he held the world record for the fastest to the 1,000-run 100-wicket double. Yeah. And he did that while playing for a weaker team. Exactly. And, but, but I think, like, you look at his record, and he obviously opens the batting for the vast majority of his career, but he averages about 31, 32. It's a bit like if you look at John Reed's record for New Zealand, and you think, 
if they'd been a stronger side where he could have batted at five, six or seven, would he have ended up with a better average? I mean, he might, might not have ended up with the double hundreds, of course, in that case, but he might have ended up with a better average and we would have thought of his batting slightly higher. But I think if we know on basic talent, if you can make two double hundreds in test cricket, that shows you that you're an incredible talent. He just didn't, wasn't probably maximized. A chunk of his career went away due to the, the Second World War. That's also true. So that yeah. was when he was at his peak. So when Lord Tennyson brought a team in the late 1930s to India, these matches did not get test status. And Mankar had an excellent series against them. This was a strong team, stronger than some of the earlier English teams. But this one did not get test status. And Mankar had an excellent series. And after that, he missed nearly a decade at his prime. So what we see is cricket mostly towards the end of his prime or after his prime. Yeah, I, th I think that's very fair. Um, so just on his bowling, the one thing I always remember from his bowling is he, he averages 32 with the ball, which is, I think, a good quality bowler of that era. There's absolutely no problem with that as a finger spinner. But the interesting thing that I always remember is he has a lower average away than he does at home, which is partly because the conditions were better for spin bowlers away from Asia at that point. You know, you got the sticky dog wickets occasionally and obviously, you know, England spinners and even South African spinners of those sorts of eras, you know, and you know, the Australian spinners of that era, they all did a lot better before the pitches got a lot harder and a lot flatter and a lot better for fast bowling. But there aren't that many Indian spinners I would have thought that have a better record away from home than at home. So I think that's a really noticeable thing about him. Two eight-wicket hauls. The only cricketer in history with two 200s and two eight-wicket hauls. I was going to say, he's got that sort of thing of that extreme all-rounder where you look at his numbers and you're like, oh, his overall numbers don't pop. But the individual impacts he had on, on games is so incredible. And you listen to stories about his batting and his bowling, and he's talked about far, in a way that maybe one day we'll talk about Flintoff, right? Yeah. Where you'd be like, you, you kind of had to be there and understand peak Flintoff to understand the kind of impact he had. Was he the last player until Irfan Patan to open the batting and bowling for India in a test match? Or did Irfan Patan not even do that? I can't remember now. I know he opened the batting. Patan did that, but uh, there's been Manoj Pradhaka. Ah, oh, Manoj Pradhaka. So there haven't been many players in the history. So again... And Gavaskar. That's a good one. I, I forgot that one. Uh, of course. I mean, he rates himself his... Uh, uh, I mean, Gavaskar takes, to, used to take bowling very seriously. So here's my point. And I, I'm going to explain exactly why I'm going to point this out. India now have Virat Kohli. Right? And they had Jasper Bumrah, and they've had Sachin, and they've had Gavaskar, and they had great spinners and all these players. One day in the next 20 years, people are just going to be looking at a guy who had a batting average of 31 and a bowling average of 32 and go, he was okay. They're not going to look at the fact that he lost his peak career to the war. They're not going to look at the fact that he could take eight wicket hauls and make double hundreds. They're not going to look at the fact that he opened the batting when he probably shouldn't have been opening the batting all the time. All these sorts of things are going to be washed away and eventually we're going to be left with, oh, he was a middling cricketer. You and I both know also, we haven't even discussed the fact that if he was around for limited overs cricket, he probably would have been a better player as well. That probably suited, especially his batting, even more. One day people are going to look back and go, ah, Vinu Mankad, he wasn't that much. His name will get mentioned less and less and less as the years go on. And until the last couple of years when this act started happening a lot, his name was already being mentioned less and less because there's post-1983 cricket in India and there's pre-1983 cricket in India. And then you've got post-2007 and, and pre-2007. He's not going to get talked about much as one of the greater players of India. And yet he held together a struggling India side brilliantly and gave them, uh, a bit like John Reid did for New Zealand, gave them an, a world-class performer in two different disciplines at a time when they were struggling to find people who could do it in even one discipline. 
Why do I bring all this up? Because the one reason he keeps getting brought up and we keep talking about his career, and the reason we're talking about his career today is because of the run-out. And the run-out, you see, uh, you have to understand this. I mean, uh, I don't, I, after all these years, it has been 75 years, I cannot help but be impressed by the man. So India is a new country. It has not even been a year since India has become independent. They are touring and playing against probably the greatest cricketer in history. One of the greatest teams in history too. Yeah. yeah. And most cricketers from a new country, let alone, uh, let alone their strength, in uh, the country is new. As an independent country, India is new. Most cricketers would have hesitated to do this. But Mankat ran out Brown and Bradman supported him. Mm-hmm. Not just Bradman, Bill O'Reilly supported him as well. So the greatest batter and the greatest bowler of that era both supported him. And Bill Brown also supported him, didn't he? Didn't Bill Brown say that he was out of his crease? At first, he was angry, but he yeah. saw saw sense later. And the other thing is, the, I think the Sydney Morning Herald, they invited uh, opinions from readers. And most of them supported Mankert. They even uh, said that Brown would not have dared it against an English side. Which he probably did. Yeah. He probably, he probably did, did and no one noticed, right? Yeah. But but yes, I, th- I think that that's very fair. Also, I think when you're talking about how great the guts to do that is, he did it twice in a week and a half, right? Yeah. So he did it in a warm-up game and then did it again in the test match. That just shows that, A, Bill Brown was really annoying him, and rightly, because Bill Brown was getting a head start all the time. But also, he probably didn't see it as that negative a thing if he'd done it one week and then did it again the next week. Is that fair? Uh, okay. In the tour match, Mankard warned Brown yes. and then ran him out. So that is fair. And then next, there was another tour match in Brisbane. This time, Mankard warns Brown, but doesn't run him out. Then comes the Sydney Test match. This time, there's a run out without any warning. So how many times do you warn a <laughs> Okay. Honestly... So there are two runouts and two warnings. The warning is not even there in the laws. We will talk about warnings in a little while because I think that's a really interesting thing, right? This is what I want to say to you right at the moment. When does it become a big issue as far as the issue where the name gets attached to it and where it becomes negative? Because everything I've ever read about the incident itself, that's not really what happened at the time. Beforehand, it wasn't called the man cat, obviously, because he hadn't done it. At one stage, it becomes A, then his name gets attached to it, and B, it just becomes very, very anti. And I'm assuming England is involved here. I'll tell you something. Dipti Sharma ran out Charlie Dean. The next day, I think Charlie Dean herself had a chance and then jokingly let it go. Hmm. In the same season when Mankar ran out Brown, Brown jokingly tried to run out a couple of South Australians. So... <laughs> Essentially, nobody took it seriously. Nobody took the matter seriously. There was an initial discussion, but the matter subsided. Okay. So how does it become negative? When does this happen? And I'm just going to assume here that England is involved, but you tell me how that sort of happens. I can't see uh, uh, any uh, England involvement. Interesting. Okay. So when Charlie Griffith runs out Ian Redpath and uh, the age reports it as... Griffith pulls a Vinu Mankar. Okay. Vinu Mankar is within quotes. Okay. So that's when the name gets attached. So when when is that? How many years after is that? So this is uh, about two decades after Mankar. 
Oh, that's it. I didn't realize it took that long. Okay. But in the meantime, what we see is there is a similar run out in Oxford and another in Cardiff, one in Udaipur. And then Griffith does it uh, once in West Indies domestic cricket. There is one in Lahore, in Delhi. And then Griffith does his second run out. Okay. Also, it's worth saying that Charlie Griffith, this is probably a side issue, but spin bowlers usually do it more because fast bowlers don't like running in <laughs> more than they have to. And it's, it's harder for them to see it happening, whereas for a spin bowler, it's very... So it's interesting that Charlie Griffith does it. And also, Charlie Griffith is... I don't think... Was he ever called for chucking? I don't think he was called for chucking. But, but he was yeah, suspected were, of chucking his whole career. So he was already yeah. seen as a negative player by many people within cricket. And then he pulls this off. So is that when it becomes more negative or not? Six years after this, Greg Chappell runs out debutant Brian Luckhurst. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a piece that starts with Mankert started the fad. When we know he didn't. It started long before Mankert was even born. So that's 74, 75. So we're yes. now almost 30 years since Mankert doing it. And also, by fad, I can still only see about another 10 or so <laughs> occasions that have happened. Or maybe, maybe 15. Yeah. There's no fad. <laughs> it has been happening everywhere around the world. So I don't know. I mean, then in 78, 79, I come across a column by KC Mehrhomji. So he is, his uncle paid for India. So he writes in the Sydney Morning Herald that the term Mankadet had already been coined. Okay. So until now, he pulled a Vinu Mankad was within quotes and so on. So, But now Mankading becomes a verb. And so that could be, even if it's not happening in written parlance, it's a bit like the wobble ball, right? The wobble ball, yes. the phrase was used a long time before by cricketers than it was used outside of cricket, right? Wheelhouse, you know, all those sorts of phrases, right? Reverse swing, all those sorts of phrases, they come from the cricketers themselves. So it is possible that the phrase man-cat or man-catting is being used consistently, well, not consistently, yeah. but whenever they happen throughout that period, but it's not being written down by the journalists. That is a possible thing that happened. Yes, possibly. And also, none of these are named after a person, remember? But Mankad is. So yep. it's probably different. So uh, it can. there's no actual parallel to this. I mean, Whenever you use a term like this, it's usually to, in appreciation, like being wakard yeah. or say uh, Dilskoop. Dilskoop and Marillier are probably the only two that were ever used. Marillier only... Bosi. Oh, Bosi. Yeah, no, you're right. Bosi. Yes. So, so, so Bosi stuck around for a while and then obviously different places called the wrong and then the googly. So that's fine. Dill Scoop stuck around for a while, but if you notice, people don't really play the Dill Scoop. Yeah. Like, he was the only one who played it in his style consistently. Marillier, I reckon, had about four years, but then I think people realized that Marillier was too long a word, you know, and we went with scoops and ramps. I've read a couple of reports that refers to the silly point as Greg point after Tony Gray. Okay. And then you have three slips and a mallet. For a gully. Which is a term for gully. Yeah. And then there was the Carmody field. So that umbrella of fielders yep. behind the batter. So that was the Carmody field after Keith Carmody. So there, there are some terms, but nothing as lasting as this. Bosi was probably something that could have stuck. But Bosi would have had a good 
50 or 60 years, though, wouldn't it, of being yeah. a term? And I think now, most people listening to this podcast, if you said BOSI, would still know that you meant a wrong, and even if they don't use that as their word, or if they use Googly or whatever they use, I think BOSI is maybe the next generation is starting to slip out more. But when you and I started following cricket, BOSI was still used occasionally on commentary. Yes. You know? Yes. So, yeah, no, that um, I hadn't even thought about that. Michelle. Not a cricketer, but Michelle Pfeiffer. should deserve a mention. Yes. I hope that one disappears, by the way, but that's a different thing. We need more words for five wicket hauls and fifers. Yeah. We can't go on writing the same phrase. <laughs> okay. So we're now at the point where people think it's a fad, even if it is quite clearly not a fad. I would say from the 80s onwards, it is definitely seen as negative. Do you notice the difference in the writing from the late 70s and 80s onwards? Yeah, and uh, when 87, we know the incident. I mean, I saw it on TV and then I thought when I grew up, I was basically conditioned to believe that not running out was the noble thing to do. So when we saw Courtney Walsh not run out Salim Jaffer, we all thought it was a nice thing to do. I think that Courtney Walsh moment is a really, really seminal moment in all of this. Yes. Because... When we were growing up, and you and I, you know, roughly the same sort of age, when we were growing up, we didn't see as many man cards, but we did see that. And that was like pushed as, this is how you play cricket. Yes. And I really remember. He got a carpet. He got a carpet. Yeah. He got a carpet for not running someone out legally. Yes. And remind me of the game. Was it the second last ball or the last ball? The last ball. So last ball, he has a chance of winning the game. Or would it, no. Would it have won the game? Were they nine down? This is from memory because there's no ball by ball. Yeah. So they needed 10 from three balls and then Kadir, Kadir hits a six and then they run two twos. So it's one of the two twos. Yep. So I remember the six two two to end the match. I've seen the video, but I can't remember the full scores. But either way, it was certainly pushed as a huge moment. It happened in a World Cup. It's probably... Just before, like it would have been a much bigger moment had it been it happened at the 92 World Cup. But the 87 World Cup was just before they were the global events that they are today, right? But it was still a big enough one that we all knew it. Remember, this was the moment due to which West Indies did not qualify for the semi-final for the first time in the World Cup history. Exactly. So they are the best team in one-day cricket. That is not the only thing that happened. In India's first match of the World Cup, there was a, a shot that was given four. Mm-hmm. Australia scored 268. And then they checked the videos and saw that one of the fours was a six. Mm-hmm. So the umpires asked Kapil Dev, okay, can we change this to a six? And Kapil Dev said, yes. And India lost by one run. So essentially that moment got a spirit of cricket boost. Yeah. And then Walsh did this. So this was... Already portrayed as, uh, remember, this was the first World Cup outside England. Yeah, it's a big moment for cricket, right? Yeah, so so these two moments that cost their teams close matches Mm -hmm. were actually looked up as uh, huge uh, advertisements for cricket. I'm going to ask you something about you personally. Have you ever tried to mancad someone in a cricket game? Yes, and I have been out the same way. In India, it's pretty common. Yeah, no, no, that's why I was going to ask it, because I... I think we need to get to that point that in India, it's very common. I'm going to explain my story first. And so I have done it in a game successfully and unsuccessfully. And I was praised on both occasions by the opposition coach, as much as my own coach for thinking about it. It was considered 
when I did it to be smart cricket. I, I think the first time I did it was in the last over again. They needed six to win, and I did it, and it completely put off the non-striker so much so that we probably ended up winning the game by one run because they weren't running as hard as they were because he was terrified I was going to run him out. And so it was told to me that it was positive, even though in international cricket it was seen as negative. When I played, I saw many people try it. I saw many people do the warnings. I saw people dismiss people. Occasionally, people would be upset, but they would be no more upset than kind of any trick that was played on them on a cricket field. And afterwards, everyone respected it. The other thing that happened with me is I grew up playing indoor cricket. In indoor cricket, not only is it a part of indoor cricket, it's almost the most common dismissal in indoor cricket. It's ridiculous how often people do it because in indoor cricket, you run from half a pitch. So you can see... Yeah. As you're running into bowl, if the person is in front, it's so easy to see. I think I would do it about once every two overs in in indoor cricket. Maybe not always run them out, but certainly do it so that they at least weren't cheating the extra space. So when I became a cricket writer, I'm writing all, this is fine, we should all do it. When I started in 2007, the overwhelming thought from the rest of the cricket world was, what are you talking about? This is horrendous. I never got that back from Indian fans. Indian fans were like, well, he was out of his crease. That's fair. And it did feel to me that there was a disconnect between India and the rest of the world when it came to this one specific thing. I don't really understand why. See, what surprises me in India, even when you are 12 years old, playing a street cricket match, tennis ball, where you don't get stumps, you get bricks. The non-striker uses a stick, there's no bat, they swap bats. Even there, if you leave the crease, the bowler will knock off the bricks to run you out. They they will. Mm. And no one blames the bowler. So it's in the law. Why won't they? Yeah. No, exactly. So I bring this up partly because a friend of mine who plays club cricket in Australia, he was saying that when you play club cricket in Australia now, if you play against teams with lots of Indian players specifically... There's lots of these happening. Everyone is copying, essentially Ashwin, isn't it? I suppose, obviously, um, uh, Deep Deep made a a big impact as well. But Ashwin is kind of the king of this modern thing, which again, I think for people like you and I, who think of him as a very smart cricketer, we're even more on his side. We're like, well, he's doing everything completely right here. And so it's causing problems now in different markets around the world. And the reason that it's causing these problems is because people, this is a global game now. And people have very different beliefs. And it's always why the spirit of cricket has been nonsense and the laws are much better than the spirit of cricket. Because very, very clear, if you leave your crease, you can be run out is a perfectly valid way to do it. But it wasn't the way that it, certainly through the 80s and 90s, it wasn't the way that it was pushed at the international level. I, I really don't know why they suddenly ganged up against this one particular dismissal. So the usual logic is this involves no cricketing skill. See, if a batter hits a straight drive, the bowler gets touches it with a boot and the non-striker is out of the ground. What skill does that involve? What about a half-tracker by a leg spinner, right, that you miss What about obstructing the field? Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's so silly. There are so many things in cricket that do not require... I mean, if you're a batter and someone bowls a wide to you, what skill did you have in that wide? Or if he bowls a no ball... What skill did you play? You still get benefit from that. It's such a weird argument to, to take, right? See, one of the things we love cricket so much is you get to do things. Things happen your way despite there being no skill involved. A half-tracker gets your wicket. That's funny and that is why what makes cricket so laughable. Mm. So lovable. Laughable and lovable. I agree with you there. Yeah. 
No, I'm 100% with you. And I just think there are so many other situations where it's so bizarre that we allow for the lack of skill to play a part without worrying at all, right? And yet yeah. in this one situation, we decide that it's an issue. Because again, I think a lot of people were brought up thinking this is an issue. There's two other things when it comes to the laws and the playing conditions that are quite interesting. The warning, right? So Vinu Mankad does a warning right, on Bill Brown. In fact, as you said, he did multiple warnings over weeks. So I, I'll repeat this. Match one, warning, then run out. Match two, warning, no run out. Match three, no warning, run out. So one bowler, one batter, two warnings, two run out. Yeah. When does the first warning start? I have no idea. And why? I couldn't track this because anywhere. Because you and I have both researched this topic. And when you go back through the history... It is seen as positive. It is seen as just don't leave your crease if you don't want to be run out. There's absolutely no problem with that. And then suddenly somewhere it becomes you get a warning. It's a really, really interesting twist because that, as much as the spirit of cricket stuff, let's put that to this side, it's the warning that really starts to cloud this dismissal, right? You can have a warning before any dismissal at that point. Yeah, I mean, can you think of anything else in cricket that requires a warning? It's going to be something obvious we're missing, isn't there? I mean, you have to tell people if you're going from over the wicket to around the wicket, which is yeah. less of a warning. But that's, that's informing. Yeah. That's like... I'm not yeah. sure that's a warning specifically. You have to tell them what arm you're going to bowl with. Again, that's... Yeah, I yeah. wouldn't say... That, 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 that's something funny, how perceptions change. So 1827, when they decide to abandon underarm and they want to bowl another type of ball, there's a problem. And in 1981, when Chapel bowls underarm, there's a problem again. <laughs> yeah. You can't win as a bowler. Exactly. So it's, no, I mean, so the whole warning thing, I think really muddies it. And then on top of that, and I think the MCC are getting a lot closer. I don't think the laws have always been perfectly written. I think the law was, it was pretty clear and it was good, but I think the latest update that they released, what well, was it probably a couple of weeks back, uh, we're recording this at the end of January. So the update that they did a couple of weeks back about bowling through. So in indoor cricket, you're actually allowed to bowl through your delivery, pretend you're going to bowl, then the player starts running and then you can run them out. That takes it to another level where I'm just not sure the game necessarily needs that. Whereas if the bowl is still coming up and the bat is already out of their crease, well then... That's slightly different. But if we went to the indoor cricket style, that's fine. I actually think the problem with that would be we would start to injure fast bowlers who were trying to catch people out by pretending the ball. So it's fine in indoor cricket when you've got a six-step run-up. But if Charlie Griffiths is coming from 50 steps back, uh, you don't really want him stopping in the crease on a dead move to try and run someone out. So I think that's probably a fitness thing where I think that's more of an issue. We saw with the Adam Zampa one, you know, there was just a couple of slight wordings that were incorrect. But the MCC has been steadfast on this law for a very long time, right? Yeah. There's a reason it exists. And it exists because if we didn't have this law, we would have a situation where people would get an unfair advantage when it comes to running between the wickets. And when you talk about the Mitchell-Stark option, which is the five penalty runs, I don't think that's a big problem in international cricket when you've got a third umpire looking at it. But at every other level of cricket, that will never work. And it's a stupid idea because there's no way the umpires can do it. Also, how does it work in test cricket where a side is trying to save a test match and runs of an hour of no consequence? Yeah. So. Now that's good. That's a good point. Last wicket, you're saving a match, run, five, 300 runs left to win the match. And you're trying runs to get your batter, batter back on strike. So he's yeah, cheating. Yeah. So he's now three meters out. It doesn't matter. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, how many times could you do it before you ended up in the negative, which would be another funny thing. Yeah. <laughs> We're now negative three as our opener has, uh, has walked out to begin with. All right. So you brought this up at the start. I want to finish it off here with the chat, which is I very casually used the, the phrase man cat at the start. I'm going to make my case for this and you make your case and we can do this. My worry is that, as you said, very few people have ever had something named after them. It's got negative connotations now, but less negative connotations. Every generation over the last couple of years seems to be more and more in favor of this as a, a legitimate dismissal than previous generations were. I don't think it's going to be negative forever. I think it will swing back around and people will start going, yeah, well, the stupid batter should get back in their crease and we'll just move on from it. I could be wrong, of course, but that's the way that I think it's going to happen. My thought is that Vino Mankind had the courage, the ability because he had to watch what was happening with the batter. And then he did it multiple times. And if we don't keep that in, how many times will people talk about his career in 20, 30, 40, 50 years time? His family have said that they don't like the term because they see it as negative. I don't think as many people do see it as negative now. But more importantly, what's more important, him not being mentioned at all and fading into the sort of person that only you and I care about, or is it more important that every time it's brought up, it's like, oh, well, actually, so many times you see an explainer on, on Mancats and they explain what he was as a cricketer. He stays in the current cricket conversation by this term. I could see why his family see that as a negative because it certainly has been for much of the last 30 to 40 years. My worry is we'll never mention him again. He'll just disappear out of the game altogether. So the thing is, I always use the term. And largely because I was very impressed by, as I said, Vinu Mankar, a cricketer from a new country, doing this, not being awed by Bradman and his team, doing it in Australia. It was incredible, I felt. But last year, Rahul Mankar, his son, personally asked me not to. Mm. And then Rahul Mankar passed away. So I cannot bring myself to use That's very fair as well. Anymore. I mean, it, it's an interesting one. because Until then I used it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really interesting one. I, I obviously, I've never met the Mankat family. As far as I'm aware, they've never contacted me to get me to stop using the phrase. If they did it personally, I might find slightly different, but I don't think I would yeah. because I want Vino Mankat to be remembered forever, right? And you and I, as cricket historians know, how often players of his ability fade into nothingness, right? Other than when someone else like you or me writes an old book, they get mentioned again briefly. And, you know, maybe one day Ashwin will make a double century and everyone will be like, oh, well, he's the last person to do that since Mankad. Whereas at the moment, I feel like we're forced to talk about him. And I do think he was a really important cricketer to Indian cricket. And then I think he also becomes a very important cricketer to the global game. And I don't want that to disappear. But it's a really interesting one. I, I, so I see it very differently to left arm wrist spinners. That was an easy one for me. I think I wrote about that in 2007, 2008. I was just like, well, this is a racist term. Also, when you do the research on it, you realize not only was it racist, it was thought to be racist in Yorkshire in the 1920s. And so that's a very, very easy one. There are other phrases, of course, like maiden. Maiden's a really interesting one going ahead and we're, with more women being involved in the game. You and I have both moved from batsmen to batters seamlessly, I would say. So it's a really interesting discussion. Also, left arm wrist spin. Basically, for my book, I contacted, it was an uh, India-South Africa match and Paul Adams played. So I contacted Paul Adams and he told me 
that we should really use it. Interesting. That. So that was when my research started. Yeah, that's really, I've talked to Paul before. I've never heard him say that. When I interviewed him, I probably just called him a left arm wrist spinner. So it probably, it didn't matter. But as someone who went through the, you know, the racial ringer with South African cricket, it's interesting that he came about that. This one's different though, isn't it? It just is different. And, and I, you could, I think in 20 years time, there might be people very upset with me that I'm still using that phrase. It's also possible in 20 years time that the name has been rehabilitated because we look at the whole thing. I really do think that the, the newer generation of cricket, and maybe also, here's another one for you. I do think that that sort of England conservative nature of cricket after post-World War II has an effect on cricket in general, as you say, that sort of pulling back side of it. The next generation is already being and will continue to be shaped by India. If India don't have a problem with this run out, it's a very, very different world that we're entering, right? If India is the, the main source of media on cricket and they start to shape the narratives the way that England and Australia did before, and they think of it as a positive, it'd be really interesting to see where this uh, run out is in 10 or 15 years time. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, see, for a long time, I used to think that not running out someone is the noble thing to do. And I was conditioned by Indians. So essentially, there are Indians who still believe that this is a wrong way to. But yes, it is not strictly England, India, but it is somewhat of a mindset thing. Mm. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And I'm warning you now so that I don't have to do it. If we ever play a cricket game and you are a millimeter out of the crease, as I've said before, I have run my own mother out in a backyard game when she left the crease early. I would do the same to you, but thank you for coming on the show. I got a send off. <laughs> I'm going to do that to someone. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Red Inca on 99.94. For more information about us, go to 99.94dm.com. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa, and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. There is more information on my guests in the show notes. Please support them where you can, but also support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share, or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. We also have a great support team from 42, with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Sainapia, and Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makanda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Our theme tune is by the Red Cricket. Podcast Network.